Welcome to the Access Podcast, um, a SOAS Face Partnership for all things access and participation. My name is Renata Albuquerque, your presenter, and this podcast is produced by my colleague Simon Tullett. Our guest today is Julian Crockford. Uh, Julian is Senior Lecturer of Student Experience and Evaluation and Research at the University of Sheffield Hallam. He's also Associate Director for Research, Evaluation and Monitoring at Applied Inspiration, a global organization working in access and participation. In this episode, I'm hoping to discuss um, Julian's article on evaluation, uh, which was published in the Widen Participation Lifelong Learning Journal, um, Special Edition um, Evaluation 2020, as well as some of the issues that he's raised um, in two articles he wrote for the Wonky in 2022. One um, on the OFS consultation and another one on schools and higher education partnerships. Hey, Julian, welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, it's great to be here. I was, I was really chuffed to be asked. Um, I, yeah, as you probably know, I love talking about this stuff. So, Lovely. Well, we have got to talk about today um, because you mentioned so many interesting things. And I, I really wanted to start with the conversation talking about the paper um, entitled Unknown Knowns, Implicit Epistemological Hierarchies in the Evaluation of Widened Participation Activities. Um, you provide quite a useful analysis of evaluation policy environment provided by first Hefke and then offer another office for students. And in that paper, you also discuss in some detail um, what you call the hierarchies of knowledge that inform as well as are generated um, as a result of um, evaluation guidance provided to us by policymakers. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is what you, what are your motivations for writing them? I, I can imagine what they might be, but it'd be really nice to hear from you. I think it it was having some, you know, history of of working in the sector. I used to manage the one participation research and evaluation unit at the University of Sheffield. And um, University of Sheffield was quite forward thinking in, in setting up the unit around the time that the fees trebled. Um, Sort of sensing that there would be more of a call for evaluation of this area of work, so I kind of sort of saw that work develop and and felt like a sort of at the sharp end of, of policy requirements. Really, you know, the things were being announced and they they would come down and we'd have to work out how to respond to them. And I think there was there was this kind of always a sense of slippage and and sort of goalposts moving. It was you know as soon as you sort of had a grip on what was required and what people were expecting policy would change or you know the, the regulation regulators would respond to policy and our job would change a bit or the expectations would change and I was quite interested in in kind of why and how that happened um and uh, I was also lucky enough to start an EDD which I'm still doing it's been taking a while um at the University of Sheffield School of Education um which is focusing on the evaluation of Widening participation uh, across the so this becomes part of the kind of academic work that I was doing towards that, and I think what what I was seeing was that the at the highest level in the, the policy kind of governmental element quite often this stuff was a sentence or two in a letter from a minister to the you know the head of office mm. or OFS and mm-hmm. it was just a you know you know you, you need to prove what works you need to prove how the money's being spent. And then the the regulator offer or the OFS would have to translate that into guidance. Um, but there, it was changing all the time. because obviously with the short, short kind of policy cycles, the ideas, you know, particularly now with, you know, 
a, a kind of revolving door of education ministers and expectations. You get set up to do one thing and then someone comes in and, and it kind of all changes. So I was quite interested to sort of map and, and try and understand for myself, really, how the environment, how the expectations had changed. And I sort of saw an evolution of how policymakers and regulators thought about evaluation. And um, in, the, in the early days, it was kind of there was a lot of implicit assumptions that, um, you know, monitoring was the key thing. So we just had to make sure money was being spent and it was reaching mm-hmm. students and that universities would know what worked and they would just sort of the regulators would come in and, and ask us and say what worked. And I think that sort of seemed to do a bit of a disservice to the complexity of the work that we do. You know, I think um, it, that it's very hard to kind of come up with easy answers to some of those questions. Um, and I have to say, actually, I, I sort of knowing a lot of the, the people who were working at the time, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of felt for them because the the, the rug was being pulled quite a lot by policy uh, changes, you know, particularly after the financial crash in 2008, when mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, we're in a, a regime of austerity and money and, and spend becomes really important. And then mm-hmm. there was, you know, the other pivotal point for me was sort of 2012 with the trebling of fees and this you know huge injection of money students money into widening participation and obviously that that raised the stakes for evaluation as well so and the whole discourse at the time of the political discourse as well around yeah value for I mean, money yeah yeah i mean i, I sort of that's a rabbit hole i always try not to fall into because it's really interesting yeah yeah you know that um the the public management stuff with new labor and yeah. deliverology and, and obviously um Michael Barber was was one of the architects of the sort of new Labour approach, and then was was kind of I forget his, his formal title, but he, he was kind of leading the um, office for students when it launched. So you see that whole kind of um, approach to public management trying to be applied to our part of the sector. In in, in this sort of hierarchies of epistemologies, mm-hmm. one of the things that you mentioned is the distinction between evaluation that is to reflect and to inform uh, how activities are developed and what we do and processes. It's, it's a kind of reflective um, evaluation. And then the activity, the evaluation that is more about uh, deciding whether something's worth doing or not, if it's, whether it's value for money or not. And for me, um, that is like, for me, the distinction between formative and summative evaluation. And, and I was wondering, you know, if you think that this is a correct um, sort of analysis, but also whether you think there's room for both, whether there should be more than one, or what should be the combination of these? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'd say, yes, definitely room for both. Mm. You know, I think the, the more, the better. And um, I think the the kind of the mapping of that kind of, the, the different forms of evaluation onto formative summative is quite interesting. Mm. And I'd, I'd never really thought of it that way, but I can see, you know, that the kind of summative stuff maps onto the, you know, the, um, I guess the, the question of what works, you know, provide us the evidence, you know, of that. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think um, I spent quite a lot of time thinking about the so-called paradigm wars um, mm-hmm. between, you know, the kind of positivist, what works, you know, um, data-driven approach, which is looking for, you know, quantitative measures of, of mm. whether something's effective, um, which obviously works really well in a number of areas. Um, and then the, the other kind of the other position and the kind of I guess I'd have to say I was more closely aligned to is that sort of more qualitative, quantitative, constructivist kind of approach to evaluation, which is getting away from the 
this idea that the, the real world is is kind of you know unchangeable and solid and we can just measure it and find out what works because obviously this the stuff that we all do it involves complex human beings in complex circumstances and that that creates a much more different you know much different picture so and i guess i guess what you're arguing is that there is no hierarchy of knowledge between those two yeah. they're both as good as each other or some of them better in certain circumstances than others yeah and i think that that hierarchy thing is is interesting because it implies someone to say what the hierarchy is and you know i mean we, we, i think as a sector you know of, of wp evaluators we've been beaten with the gold standard stick for a long time mm. you know if you've got to do um, par- um randomized control trials because it's the only you know and and that's you know that's a, a view and <laughs> it comes mm. from a particular place mm-hmm. and it comes from a particular view of what evaluation can do and i think it, it maps onto the, the thing you were talking about around um, the distinction between evaluating to prove or demonstrate value for money, to demonstrate, you know, the success of a policy intervention, and the other side of it, which I think, you know, again, a lot of us are really interested in, is is understanding what we do better, and looking, you know, uh, increasing our, our our kind of appreciation for the complexity of what we do, and and understanding the things. Or understanding the complexity of the knowledge that goes into what we do so that we so, can identify good practice and share it with each other. Yeah. So for me, the main reason of doing more of the sort of qualitative and constructivist thing that you're talking about is that there is only so much that you can account for when you do a quantitative analysis. The world that this that our participants are, you know, live in are very complex and I don't know how any, you know, RCT could actually separate really everything else that goes on in their lives and and the wider economic and political environment. Um, so for me, that's the main reason for not using that as the gold standard. Um, yeah. Useful, but not necessarily the gold standard. Yeah, I mean, it does produce evidence that policymakers want because it it makes their decision making easier. But I I agree with you. The you know I sort of I, I've kind of delved a little bit into the the question of uh, return on investment and value. Oh, yeah. money. Mm. And you know I've, I've been particularly looking at sort of the way that industry might evaluate the impact of training courses for, and it sort of you know you got a really complex kind of uh, modelling of stuff. And then once you get to the bit of how better trained workers can contribute to um increases in income it gets a bit fuzzy and i think that's the, the question here since you once you if you try and plug some of this stuff into a you know a, a randomized control trial or you you abstract it and you, you yes. turn it you know you turn it into numbers and I'm, I'm kind of simplifying things a lot i know i can i can hear colleagues who are kind of experts in randomized control trials shouting at me at the moment but um, I, um in, in my head <laughs> um <laughs> And, you know, but but it does, you create a model of a reality that you can control. And by making that model that you can control, you actually bracket off and you 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 ignore a lot of the complex reality of it. And I think that's the, the thing that, you know, it, well, I guess the question is, if you, the, the, the assumption is that if you randomise your, you know, control groups and your treatment groups in a, you know, and you have big enough, um, sample groups you've actually randomized all these different elements out and you know I, i'm not sure whether that's the case the other thing that's just i've started you know it kind of bothers me and i'm not really looked into it yet is the kind of the efficacy stuff 
So you, you quite often see, um, you know, the outcomes of randomised control would, would be like some of the educational stuff, you know. Student efficacy, yeah. Yeah, and, and you yeah. know, the, the, the reading gain stuff uh, in, in schools. And it's like, you know, 35% of, of treatment group improve their reading. They think, well, what about the other sort of 65%? You know, and, and the risk is if you, you know, if you've, if you've got a randomised control trial that it, it makes some has some evidence of impact and you see an increase in the the proportion of the students benefiting from it mm-hmm. it, it kind of it, it ignores the question of what about the students who don't and who are they I, again I you know I might be and what we're we doing about it really yeah. I think more than anything because then we, we can't just ignore them because we've got these results yeah right yeah, exactly yeah and, and yeah. It, almost you know a trial-based thing almost allows us to ignore that it, yeah it, it could be that it's the, the young people that would most benefit that aren't being helped by it. I think that the two approaches work really well together, and they should complement each other. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm a bit hesitant about gold standards. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of, it's more of a box of chocolates approach where you just, yeah. The best and we, we talked a little bit before. We talked about you know not being able to do this really, not being as effective doing this quantitative measures if you're talking about smaller groups of students. Um. And still needing to find out the evidence about you know how it works or what to what works and the, those things we deliver those activities we deliver. Yeah, and and I think um, TASO the I'm going to get the acronym wrong now the Centre for Transforming Outcomes and Student Access. I think that's uh, um, they you know I'm kind of very very you know on the margins of a, a project that they're running that looks at um the what the 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 small n small number evaluations Mm. and what what's interesting about the you know the the website's brilliant and there's so many great resources and i'd I'd kind of recommend everyone listening to go and check it out Mm. um is that it's actually i think i think it's possible that there was maybe a hope that you could do some scientific trial-based designs with small numbers of students uh-huh. but most of the the methods that are, are, are listed on the TASO website actually do something different and they're actually much more theory driven so a lot of the methods um the small n methods you can do with a case you know a small number of cases you can do with one student or a, a number of students or um, but it works a lot harder to understand what's going on. So you you might start off with a theory about how your intervention is going to work. And then you bring different stakeholders in, you bring students in, you draw on different evidence and you, you test your hypothesis about how it's working. All right. So, so what you wind up with at the end may not be a sort of quantitative measure of, you know, a, a effectiveness or percentage of students that benefit. But what you wind up with is a much more complex model of how what you're doing actually does what you want it to do and you you were involved in that group that developed that is that right yeah yeah Yeah. I was I mean the the main bit of work was led by um, Professor Chris Fox at um, Manchester Met University the um, policy evaluation research unit I think it is and uh, so so that they they were the kind of the methodological gurus and geniuses in that they knew and had used a lot of these methods and uh, my role in in the project was to try and act as a bridge between that methodological approach and the context on the ground for us evaluators and mm-hmm. um, so I, I kind of I, I tried to translate a lot of the methodologies into fict- fictionalized case studies to imagine how it would play out because a lot yes. of these methods haven't been used in our part of the sector there are six um 
sample projects going on at the moment who have been using these methodologies. I'm really excited about them reporting their findings because we can replace the kind of hypothetical. Yeah, which uh, is when? Um, the project is due to end, I think, in May. Okay. Um, and I think, I mean, it's it's been a fascinating process just seeing how the teams on the ground, there's some brilliant interventions as well that they're doing, you know, outreach and um, support in particular targeted groups, mm-hmm. um, actually um, engage with the methodology and, and and where they have to adapt it to do what they want, yeah, where it's yeah. particularly useful. So, um, And so they the, the project's in May, and you think that they will be reporting when? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd, yeah. I'd, 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 I'd have to ask my TASO colleagues, but I'd imagine hopefully they'd be up by the start of the academic year next year. Yeah, that'll be brilliant to know more about that. OK, yeah. lovely. You know, um, just moving on a bit from sort of my other questions is um, that you um, you describe uh, the possibility of um, having a range of different ways of modeling the relationship between policy formation and evidence. And um, I was just wondering, you know, um, a bit more. Could we talk a bit more about that? What you mean by that? Yeah, and again, it, this is the kind of. I suppose it was the driver for the for the the paper mm-hmm. in the sense of there, there was a sort of feeling of as a, an evaluator being squeezed into a a mold that policymakers wanted, and 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 as a result, a lot of the stuff that I was seeing that I felt was really valuable is is kind of left on the cutting room floor. I think it's you know it's quite understandable given the the kind of pressure on every, the time pressure and resources pressure on it, everyone quite often and and you know this is this is a very mean thing to say um, but sometimes it feels like policy and decision makers want enough evidence to kind of either avoid making a decision because the data tells them what the answer is mm. or to make that decision as easy as possible which you know if I was in their position I'd want exactly the same thing um, but the problem is that 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 creates a set of expectations about what evaluation does and um will create expectations about the kind of evidence we give them I, I, so it's quite you know in in my imagining again i'm probably being unfair it's quite a top-down process so you've got kind of you know the policymakers they want to know how best to frame policy or to allocate resources so they they kind of ask the practitioners and it, it's it's the they're, 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 in, they're imposing their kind of uh, requirements and model on the practitioners. And I'd much prefer to see a kind of top down and a bottom up approach where there was more collaboration about, you know, to increase policymakers understanding. So, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd much prefer to see a kind of top down and bottom up approach. It's um, funny because this really leads into my next, my next questions very well, because at times, you know, and you even recognize this in, in one of the papers that that top-down approach hasn't really worked because people haven't had the skills or the resources to actually do what people are asking them to do. And 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 personally, I, I haven't seen much of a discussion on the sort of philosophical or ideological underpinnings, which you talk about in terms of who is the audience. In the article for the Wonky on the Heiji and Schools Partnership, um, you warn against, you warn, I suppose, the audience, the reader, against adapting the policy. Um, meaning the evaluation policy that is being proposed. Um, and I suge- I'm suggesting that um, that actually happens a lot because people have to fit in around their, their knowledge, their experience of evaluation. And it's not easy acquiring um, experience of evaluation. It takes a while um, you know, of doing it to really understand it. So um, 
this this idea of collaboration of practitioners having an opportunity to shape evaluations you know that that sounds um really ideal yeah I think I'm not, I was really influenced by sort of Stephen Ball's analysis of policy in in the in the compulsory education sector. And mm-hmm. he, he, my favourite term probably ever is he talks about policy ad hocery, mm-hmm. and it's the way you know that, that schools are instructed to do something, and and um, the, the practitioners in the school will kind of see that as you know they'll they'll play lip service to policy. They'll they'll probably do what they're supposed to, but mm. they'll also look for opportunities to bend the policy to deliver something they want. <clears throat> and I suppose it, it's one of those things, I, I suppose it kind of feels a bit like the, the kind of conversation between policymakers and practitioners is is going through very narrow bandwidth. Mm. So <clears throat> given that, you know, everyone's going to have to be quite instrumental about it because there's not much time or resource to think about this. So in, so, in some ways, I, I I think of it as a kind of sort of ninja approach to stuff. So you have to do what policymakers want. So you'd give the, you know, you you, you do that evaluation the way it's, you know, been asked or required. But in, if possible, you try and carve out space to do the more interesting stuff. And I guess the hope is that if you can do the more interesting stuff or the stuff that's closer, perhaps to your practitioner knowledge and beliefs about how things work, you can prove that there's another way of doing stuff. I guess in, in in my limited experience to, to kind of move policymakers and decision makers, you have to show them what works. So it's always about trying to carve that space out to, to do something that's possibly different or alongside the policy drivers. And then you can say, well, actually, look, you know, we've done this, but we also did this. And this actually gave us much more useful information. And then what we you know what once people see the value of that, then it might help us create space to do that stuff. So, so, so what you're saying is that one way in which we can do that is to um, provide the information, even if it's not what is exactly. But I think that's what people have been doing anyway. To be honest with you, yeah. um, because because we use a lot, we tend to use a lot more qualitative than quantitative. Um, methodologies as well but there is also now a move to recruit more evaluation um, and research um, posts um i've been doing this job for 14 years and um it's always been like that in a way um you um you know you wrote this article for the uh, on the proposals of the recent Office for Students consultation on the APP, and that was part enthusiastic and part critical. You see, you, were, you seem to be particularly enthusiastic about um, intervention strategies, um, but I, my, my, um, my perspective, my, my, what I know is that people writing APPs are quite concerned about um, intervention strategies, how much time it might take to um, write systematic strategies for every activity that they deliver and how long an APP will be as a result of having that. Um, What are your views on that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, disclaimer, um, I'm not going to be responsible for writing the APP at <laughs> Sheffield Allen. You know, I might, I'll contribute it, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's my colleagues who'll be writing it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I probably have the luxury of um, feeling enthusiastic about mm-hmm. um, the fact that it it is, it's asking us as a sector to really delve into the theory behind what we do. 
But it does seem like this is an opportunity now. If mm. we can get over the structural problems of creating space within our institutions to do the thinking, to tap into all the experience that people have and actually surface that and actually um, be able to produce a, a much more um, nuanced and complex model of how our stuff works. I want to paraphrase to see if I understood this because um, I, uh, yeah, just, just to check because I thought I thought that what what I understood was that you think that this um, writing is convention strategies and some of the other requirements that you were positive about um, is an opportunity for us to 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 take the time to think about what we are doing. There, I mean, the structural barriers are formidable. I think one of the challenges and, and um, uh, is that, you know, I, I saw this quite early on when I was starting to work in the area, that practitioners, particularly in delivery roles, were kind of, it's almost like, a you know, you measured on how much delivery you can do. Yeah. So there, there was very little time for, for people to reflect on, you know, what, what they do and why they do it and what they're yeah. learning and have that, that feedback cycle. Um, so, so I think part of the challenge in the the, new, the consultation through was to institutions themselves into, OK, how are you going to resource this space and this thinking time for the people who know what they're doing to explore it and document it and things? So I guess that's where my enthusiasm came from, is that perhaps as evaluators and practitioners, it's a lever for us to say, look, you know, this is a complex area of work. It's not all about delivery. Um, it's also about thinking and learning and professional expertise and so on. I'm actually doing some some work at the University of Kent with the WP team down there. Um, and Claire, who's the head of WP, is is, is a kind of, a, a, she's a visionary and she's, she's kind of said, you know, we're going to build in that thinking time to people's workload. So everyone knows they've got this time to step away from delivery and to do the, the thinking and reflection that's that's really important. Um, which I think is a brilliant move. And, and I suppose, you know, the optimistic side of me goes, yeah, that'd be great. Maybe, maybe, you know, other universities will take the challenge and actually build that space in because it's a resource that's, that's not often used, I don't think. I I mean, I couldn't agree more with you. In fact, we've been um, looking at this at SOAS as well about how to ensure that the... Um that there is time to think. Um, we've been thinking about this for a while um, and we constantly you know, run the same um, issue about the fact that you measure about how much you deliver, mm. which really, you know, so thinking about evaluation, we have, we do evaluation for the government, we do evaluation for uh, our institutions, and perhaps more so than the government, our institutions will perhaps measure us about how much we deliver. The thing is, if you are, you know, you hear about uh, value for money all the time in our sector, as you know, how do you translate? And I'm sure there is a way, um, subjective as it might be, that you kind of translate what you gain from the reflection into I know (laughs) and I don't know that you know I'm not sure I don't expect you to have an answer but I was just thinking about how can we tell this to our how can we so it's not just that okay the 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 regulators are asking us to do this this has a benefit as well yeah and and I guess that the first kind of answer the the kind of um Mm. 
the thing that sprung to mind is the, the thing I'm actually arguing against, mm. which is ideally what you'd want to see is a, a linkage between increased reflexivity and, and reflection time and the outcomes of the interventions. So that that's the kind of, you know, that's the linear kind of model that, um, but it, obviously it's a lot more complex than that. And, you know, mm. I, I think, I'm not sure how you'd measure it, but I think we, we talked about this before, didn't we? Um, the sector as a whole has, has really moved on from when I, st- I started about, so I started doing this stuff in sort of 2012, I think. Mm. And if you look back at where we are as a sector in terms of the expertise, the knowledge, the production of academic articles, sharing, mm-hmm. we've we've really moved on. Mm. So there's definitely been progress. Um, again, you know, you wouldn't want to fall back on a, a set of metrics, you know, like publications or or things. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting. That's a really interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna go away and mull that because it's like how do you measure knowledge and how do you measure the impact of knowledge? And I'm sure there's kind of people working in sort of knowledge management and knowledge exchange that might have the answers. So I'm gonna yeah, find them I think. I think you know, for me, and and for I, I know it's for other people as well. I think WP sits somewhere between professional services and academic staff, and and make some links between things. I mean, that's how I like to think about it anyway. How we can link different parts of the institution, um, and this idea that we are producing knowledge, I think, is quite important, even if you know whether we can borrow some from both sides in terms of our value um would be quite interested yeah, you talk- I think sorry I was gonna say that I think at the end of the day uh-huh. you know as evaluators we want the same thing as the people you know practitioners and, and folk on the ground doing the work yeah is that we want better outcomes for target student groups or, yeah. or you know and, and possibly we want to think more widely about those target groups so basically we, we want to support or we want to see a change for the students that we're concerned with and, and, you know, and really that really that can only happen through reflection right not just putting out numbers because that doesn't really tell you how to improve yeah yeah I, I mean i guess part of it and, and and this is the i guess the challenge one of the challenges is is that institutions will kind of tend to look at things as a kind of homogenous thing so they might you know they yeah. might separate out the, the ofs target groups or um but what we're you know what we're i think what we see is is that every Every student we work with is unique. They mm. might have a set of data markers attached to them, but their circumstance and their context will be unique to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the more understanding we've got about those kind of circumstances and contexts that aren't just about data indicators, mm-hmm. about lived experience, mm. the better we can tailor what we do for them. And I think evaluation definitely has a role in that, uh, in terms of producing that knowledge and that understanding. Documenting that knowledge and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and making it... Um obvious making it sharing it publicly okay yeah I mean as you can see I I quite like evaluation too um I think and 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 it is a privilege to be able to sit down and reflect but it's so good it's actually one of the best parts really yeah Uh, yeah yeah, I really like it um I was very interested in your proposal to uh, think about participants in activities as stakeholders in the evaluation. Um, it seems a bit obvious, but they're not. They haven't always been considered, and they mostly are not considered as stakeholders. Um, you've argued that it, it's a good idea. So what do you think are the main benefits of doing that? And, and what would that look like? 
I think when I started off, actually, I, I, I was really keen to get involved, get the stakeholders involved and, and collaborate. And, and I was a bit blind to the role of the participant for the, you know, the first bits of evaluation I did. Um, and then I started, um, there, there was a really, when I was at uh, University of Sheffield in the WP Research Unit, I had a colleague, Rita, Rita Hadorsi, who did a, a longitudinal study of, of students. So she followed 40 students across four years, three years of study and then into in employability. And, and one of the early things she found out was that the university is structured and thinks of itself in a particular way. So we've got support services, got financial support, got mental health support. Um, for the students, they had no idea of our operational structure. They just knew they had a need that they wanted to to to, to work through or sort out. And it, it was kind of it was one of those light bulb moments. Go actually, yeah. Do you know what student experience of a university is completely different to the way we think about it. For them, it's, you know, it's whatever their needs are at the time, that, that kind of stuff. Um, and I started, and that, you know, that led to me thinking, well, actually, you know, we, we we design, say, outreach interventions or teaching interventions based on our model of what we do and our kind of understanding of students. But really, we need to understand more about those students in their diversity and their complexity so that we can start having a more complex fresh, um, vision of what we do. And an, an example of, of how we're embedding that student um, co-production in our evaluation is it's a project that I'm doing a colleague, with my colleague Nathaniel Bickering at, um, at Hallam University. Um, and we're evaluating the impact of simulated placements in nursing degrees. And it's, it's quite a complex area because that has a particular place. Um, mm. But what we wanted to do was, was work closely with staff, but also students. So we've set up an advisory group, um, a staff advisory group and a student advisory group. Mm. And we took our proposed methodology and we said, look, this is the way we're thinking about it. Mm. And the staff actually reflected back and said, well, actually, you know what, you, your model of simulation is completely different to ours. So we changed it. And then we took it to students. And what we got from the student advisory group was the things that we thought were important, weren't important to students. Their experience and their, their view of simulation was actually whereas we'd isolated it as a concept it was actually rolled into a much broader experience and they, they didn't separate it out from their other experiences on the study so again we've had to go back and, and change our methodology and approach and we've we've changed the kind of questions we're asking and um, we're also going to use um a, a most significant change approach with students so uh, if you're not familiar about that it's actually there's actually information on the Tezo website around small n methodologies oh, yeah. it's one of one of those but mm -hmm. what you can do with most significant changes you get a, a group of participants or students mm -hmm. in a room and you ask them to tell them what well, you know and then if, if you follow the methodology throughout it's, it's kind of written up you would you would then ask the group to think about the stories that have been told and to prioritize them so which is the most significant of these stories and what you get or, or you know we, we're yet to do that workshop but hopefully what we'll get is a completely unmediated non-prompted perspective on the impact of simulated placements because we're asking students to talk from their lived experience of doing those things so I think that's a kind of negotiation between our idea of how things work and what's important and a student or participant's idea of what works and what's important. And it's always really interesting how there, there are points of connections, but they're always, you know, it's always fascinating how different they can be. So, you know, ideally, as, as we develop this approach, we'll be able to design evaluations that are reflect the 
participant or the student's experience rather than our own experiences, evaluators or researchers in, you know, HE. This is really wonderful. Um, you, in a way, I must admit that you focus it quite differently than I had, because um, you're talking about um, stakeholders as informing uh, the evaluation um, before the event takes place. I there is another role for stakeholders, which is the audience of evaluations. And, and, you may, and, and of course, the fact that some things are more important to them than others is also very relevant to um, participants as an audience of the, our evaluation report. But it, it does change how we talk about them as well, doesn't it? In, in terms of considering our, our students or our participants as a, an audience for evaluation, definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's you know the, the kind of that stakeholder analysis before we even set out to an evaluation to work out mm. how. Our, so I mean, the, the, in that you know we're going back to the beginning when we're talking about the piece that I wrote for the the journal article. Mm, mm. You know, I, I kind of thought about stakeholders. Okay, you've got policy stakeholders. They want to know what works. They want to make decisions. Mm -hmm. As practitioners, mm -hmm. we're also a key stakeholder because we want to improve our practice mm -hmm, and we want to mm -hmm. have more impact. Mm -hmm. So as, as evaluators, we're there to support that. And the participants themselves will also have a set of needs, whether, you know, I'm I, I, I still at the process of, you know, I still need to think through this, but, you know, at the very basic level, it might be, is it worth dedicating my time to this intervention? Um, and and I kind of did some more thinking about that. I, I, my previous role was at uh, Villiers, uh, Villiers Park Educational Trust, which is a kind of, it's a, a third sector charity and it works with disadvantaged mm -hmm. people to uh, across four years to mm. help them think about their futures and what they want and to make sure that they can and um we did quite a lot of work to bring the participant perspectives into that and again it was this sense of okay we've constructed this program it does this because this is what the literature tells us yes and then when you actually involve students in you know what what we should be measuring what what matters to you it yeah. can be completely different and then that that because they're talking from their own experience, that's actually quite a powerful message for other potential participants because you've got yeah. students saying, "Well, you know, I started here and and this is where I got to," and it, you know, yeah. Um, so it, it it will hopefully it will help participants decide whether our interventions are worth the investment of their time. Right, you can use it as sound bites. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, Sorry, I'm just um, one of the things that you propose in your paper. So I think we've been weaving in and out of that paper um, because a lot of the stuff that you wrote afterwards, obviously there are some synergies when you're in your thinking. Um, but just back to your paper, you wrote about something about phronenses or phronetic knowledge, um, which you argue is a, a common currency in social work and nursing practice where there's also a practitioner um, perspective or a practitioner focused delivery of you know um of of theory working on theory and and you say that you i suppose what you i believe you argue is that this is a better methodology than um the sort of scientific evaluation designs like rct so um why do you think that is and could you tell us a little bit more about phrenesis phrenesis yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, Sorry. Don't, ask, don't ask me to pronounce it because uh, it's Greek, um, right? I went to check. It is. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, what you said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I mean, it, it came. 
and I think you know I started evaluating and and I was always you know interested in talking to practice practitioners to understand stuff but in the course of working with particularly out one participation outreach practitioners at the University of Sheffield in 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 other places and and obviously through the work I do with um applied inspiration and, and working with small specialist institutions is that I very quickly saw that there was a hell of a lot of expertise that wasn't necessarily being captured because evaluation was quite often something that was being done to you know practitioners and there because of that lack of reflexive space we were talking about there was never really time for them to even acknowledge their own sort of tacit knowledge all the kind of skills and expertise they brought to bear on how they designed delivered and implemented interventions was being used but never really articulated or shared so it meant that their voices weren't weren't being uh, represented in evaluations effectively. And I, I kind of I'm still trying to work out this struggle between the power of the evaluator as a kind of point of interpretation and the voice or or the the interpretive power of practitioners who know what they're doing. You know, sort of quite often do academic colleagues a disservice by saying, well, you know, someone might might write a study on one in participation students of particular groups they might spend they might interview 30 students and that's 30 hours a lot of practitioners will do that in a week so you know just imagine the kind of expertise and observational knowledge that they've got so that the phrenesis stuff well yeah as you said it <laughs> before um that phrenesis, was yeah, phrenesis. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was reading a particularly around nursing education which is and and the phrenesis is it's kind of the technical knowledge you get from your profession. It's the ethical framework you take from your profession. It's the learning you do when you have to implement an ethical and technical framework in reality with real people. And I was thinking, well, actually, the the, the WP practitioners that I've spoken to that I know, they, they do that stuff all the time when they're working with young people. So they've got the kind of professional knowledge and the, you know, the academic knowledge and that stuff. But they've also got the, the expertise knowledge that comes from all these interactions. So they, they see the context that the young people they work in might live in. They understand their experience and they tailor what they do for that. And um, so I, I kind of that was my first sort of pitch at saying, well, actually, you know, the WP practitioners or, you know, equality and diversity practitioners, it's it's a it's a profession in the same way as social work or nursing or teachers in that it's it's really it really relies on that interpersonal knowledge and communication, that broad understanding, a set of ethics about what's right to do for particular young people in particular circumstances. Mm. And that we we probably want to acknowledge that and 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 try and as evaluators create space for practitioners to be able to talk about it and articulate it and share it with others. Because then then that validates other people's expertise as well. I think it's interesting the separation you're making because in 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 a lot of institutions evaluators and practitioners are the same. Yeah, yeah, and that, um, you know, that, that and and, whole... and sorry that does create a whole lot of questions because not everybody sees themselves as both, um, and um, and 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 how does the I think you know. It's interesting to think about how that impacts in the in the in the profession going forward. It's definitely something I've been discussing with some other colleagues. Yeah, and I think I mean it. it, it a lot of that's driven by the kind of the structural resourcing issues we were talking about, isn't it? Mm, yeah. But um, 
you know, I think we all know, you know, there's institutions where someone might have half, there might be a practitioner and have half their role as an evaluator. I think we're moving on from that. And, you know, I suppose that's why I was so enthusiastic about the OFS consultation in that it it almost seemed to be a challenge to universities to, to make sure you resource this properly and you put the expertise in. If you're a practitioner evaluator, that can obviously it can raise challenges because you're you know in John Blake's phrase you know you're, you're marking your own homework and that you know that you have to be you know it's a, a particularly it's a particular challenge to separate out the evaluator head from your practitioner head because you're you know so and I think you know I'm glad that we're, we're well we're kind of seeing a bit of a roll back on that idea of independent evaluation and I think that um, you know, when John Blake was talking about um, wanting to have uh, much more independent evaluation of what works and stuff. And, it, and we all went, you know, what does this mean? Particularly those of us that are evaluators, you know, what does that mean? And I think it was actually it was a really useful intervention because it's really it probably, you know, maybe this was the intention all along. But it's kind of opened that space up where we talk about the role of evaluation. We talk about how we use it. We talk about independence and what that means. And and I can see that as a as a sector and the kind of discussions we're having now are different as a result of having to think about that issue of independence. So, you know, it's probably quite, quite shrewd move on um, on John Blake's part there to kind of throw that into the the discussion mix sorry i think i've veered off topic a bit there no but it's interesting because i um i want to follow this up with a question um to wrap up um, a conversation today which is uh how does what you just said you know um they may have wrapped it up but that we want so me and you are on the same boat, and to some extent, so is John. We want meaningful evaluation, and yet we're being asked to do uh, to change the APP and to write something really big, really fast, and um, and the risk with that, as it always, when you do something that you know that big and that fast, is that you would just be superficial. And it will not be as useful as we would like it to be. So it's a lot of conversation about um, the face, for example, the face of APP special interest group about that recently. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. Again, it, it's the kind of structural problem, which is, and, and you know, it possibly it, it's that kind of, you know, we, we want a quick answer and want it now. Um, and you know, I think I think though, you know, those of us that have been doing uh, this stuff for a while, we all we always rail against the, you know, the the the, the impossibly short time frames. So you know, we, we'll be turning around a, a whole new app in you know, sort of maybe two or three months. We've got internal reporting and stuff like that. And so yeah, I think you're right. You know, the the kind of the enthusiastic part of me going thinks, yeah, brilliant. This this should create space. But the actual structure and the regulatory requirements close that space off again. Mm. And I think, you know, I mean, I mean, one of the, the reasons that I, you know, I, I get so enthusiastic, you know, possibly too enthusiastic about evaluation mm-hmm. is because for, for me, it's it's a thinking process. Yeah. It, it, it creates a space to think and really explore what we do. And we all come out wiser and better at our jobs as a result of engaging with it. 
the trouble is if you're forced into a you know it's a lot of um been talking about kind of molds and narrow bandwidth and stuff isn't it it's the, mm, the sort mm. of the, the the constraints and the closing in of stuff but if we're forced into a, a an impossibly short time frame then yeah i agree with you we won't do that thinking we'll do whatever we need to do to meet the time frame yeah. and that's another that's another missed opportunity it's sort of i guess you know this could be a really pivotal moment when we we all get our theory heads on we we unpack our interventions we understand how they work we develop more understanding about practice about the young people we work with we you know we can have more nuanced questions about how we make differences to particular groups mm-hmm. that's brilliant that that's kind of that's what's really exciting i would love that yeah well i think you're right it'll be kind of you know the clock's ticking we've got like two months to write this thing just you know throw a load of stuff no it won't be like that but yeah i i agree with you that's my concern it will be yeah it won't be as 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 reflective as perhaps we would like yeah Yeah. anyway thank you so much for today um it's been a real pleasure i know we've covered we haven't covered anything in a lot of depth but hey it's a lot to talk about and i really appreciate your enthusiasm for evaluation um it's definitely something that i i like to spend time doing too yeah and well uh, you know i I, I, thanks loads for the invitation i've I've loved um you know yeah i've loved riding my hobby horses and getting on my soapbox and stuff so you know if if in the future you you know you ever want to do more i'm always up for all right let's definitely do that okay thanks very much that's great thank you Uh, yeah really grateful for um julian crockford for coming to the podcast today to talk about evaluation and um his ideas around it we hope you enjoyed this podcast and we would love to receive your feedback please subscribe write a short review and or leave any comments you may have on spotify and apple podcast or linkedin you can also share your comments on twitter and if you do please tag us at the access pod once again, this podcast is presented by Renata Albuquerque, me, and produced by Annette, my colleague, Simon Tullett.